Thanks, I live here now. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on, one of you nuts has got any guts. Let's put a smile on that face. You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you, but what right? Because I have a right to be. I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let the healing begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. So this week, uh, to celebrate the release, hopefully it'll be a limited release, but the release of The Bad Batch, we are taking a look at that director's first movie, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, and we'll be talking about the psychological theme of emotional connectedness. So in order to do that, I have a return guest. I have Becky Belzeal, who we just had on here for our episode episode from Monster. Uh, she, of course, does a bunch of great writing for audienceseverywhere.net. So thank you for joining us again. Thanks. I live here now. Yes. <laughs> My podcast roommate, <laughs> Becky. That's uh, it's good. I'm, I'm okay yeah. with that. Uh, before we kind of jump into things, do you want to uh, tell people about your writing? And um, I mean, obviously, they know where to find it because I just said it. Uh, but maybe anything new that's uh, that's coming up soon. Sure. So, as usual, it's at audienceseverywhere.net, and I write mostly about horror, and we just started a new horror vertical called Night Mother that I am running, so we'll see how that goes. Nice. Awesome. So definitely check out her work at audienceseverywhere.net. So, uh, before we jump into uh, the psychology stuff, do you have a couple movie recommendations for us? I only have one because I want okay. people to see this movie really okay. bad. Um, <laughs> so we'll just – this recommendation, we're going to say it twice. So watch this movie, whatever it is. Yes. Uh, so the movie is a little Danish horror drama called When Animals Dream. Uh, it's a story about a teenage girl who lives at home with her catatonic mother and her father. And she starts to develop uh, rash and grow some body hair. And we're not really sure what this transition is about, but we're pretty sure. But anyway, it's a really great take on werewolves. Just like the movie we're about to talk about is a really great take on vampires. Nice. I like it. I'll have to, I'll have to check that out. Is that like readily available? Is that streaming somewhere? Or is it like you gotta kind of have to track it down? Well, it was on Netflix for a bit. I think it's from 2014. It shouldn't be too hard to find. Okay, nice. Awesome. All right. Uh, so thank you for that recommendation. We will take a break. I will talk about emotional connectedness, and then we'll bring Becky back to talk about A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. This is Chris Maynard. I'm host of the following films podcast. Every week I discuss a current release with one of the creative forces behind the film. Whether it's Giles Nutkins talking Hell or High Water, Leah Thompson discussing her work on Trouble with the Truth, or Jeremy Sandy chatting about his work on Deep Water Horizon. You can find our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or any place you find podcasts. Even better yet, you can go to followingfilms.com, check out our latest episode, get some film news, reviews, and all sorts of goodness. Uh, that was my son, Jacob. He says hello, and he really wants you to check out the show. All right, so it's time for the psychology section. So today we're talking about a couple things. One is emotional connectedness or connection, but really we want to talk about the opposite side of that. So when you look it up, you'll find things like emotional detachment. So emotional detachment is not, it sounds negative, but doesn't have to be. So in psychology, it can mean two different things. In its first meaning, it's an inability to connect with others on an emotional level and it's also a way that we cope with with anxiety by avoiding situations that trigger it. It can be described as emotional numbing or, in very extreme cases, dissociation. Now, in the second type, it's basically just being assertive mentally and emotionally, and it allows people or you to maintain your boundaries and integrity when faced with the emotional demands of another person or group of persons. So if you're an anxious person and you're about to go into a situation where there's going to be a whole bunch of people you don't know or don't trust, then it makes sense that you would detach emotionally and not open yourself up for anxiety or pain. All right, so the first type, this inability to connect. So it usually comes from psychological trauma, and it's a component in a lot of anxiety disorders. So the person, if, even though they're not physically present, they move elsewhere in their mind and they're not present completely mentally, which makes them seem preoccupied or even distracted. But despite that, it is sometimes nowhere near as outwardly obvious as other psychiatric symptoms. So people who have this problem tend to have emotional systems that are in overdrive, like they can't shut things down. They're feeling more than the quote-unquote normal person. 
This can cause them to have a hard time being even like a loving family member. They tend to avoid activities, people, places, anything associated with any traumatic events that they may have experienced. This dissociation can also lead to a lack of attention and memory problems and in, and in really extreme cases, even amnesia. Now, in that second sense, that mental assertiveness, that protective barrier, that boundary that people put up, it's actually a positive and deliberate mental attitude that avoids engaging other people's emotions if they're too much for you. Uh, it can be applied especially to relatives and associates of people who are in some way emotionally overly demanding. I think we all have relatives like this. We have those relatives that are demand a lot of our attention and our emotions and, and even situations that are specific like, you know, dealing with uh, speaking with your relatives about politics or religion. It may serve you to be mentally assertive enough to shut those emotions down so you don't get wrapped up in that game in that cycle. So a simple example that this site gives is there could be a person who trains themselves to ignore the pleading food requests of a dieting spouse. Um, otherwise, you may give into it and they may feel bad about it or, you know, you could get upset about all that pleading. So if you train yourself to ignore it, it gets a little better for you. Maybe not for the spouse, but for you. A more widespread example could be the indifference parents develop towards their children's begging because kids will beg and beg and beg until they get what they want or until they get distracted or tired or hungry or whatever. So if you can train yourself as a parent, and again, I know nothing about this because I'm not a parent, but if you can train yourself to, uh, to ignore that pleading, then you may not end up giving in to that child's whim, at least not every time. A really extreme version of this is, you know, what's commonly known as tough love, which basically just means you're letting a person go through a really terrible life experience and you're not interfering because you think in the end it's going to be better for them. They're going to learn something from it. And of course, this can be taken to its extreme and into a really, really bad place because you can end up putting people in either emotional or physical danger. Now, this tough love can also be a really difficult experience for the people putting them through it because you have to avoid the urge to step in and rescue that person from their pain because if you do, they don't get to have that growing experience. Uh, but if you don't, they have to feel that pain. So this detachment that we're talking about, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are not feeling empathy. It's actually more of an awareness of those empathetic feelings that allow the person's space needed to choose whether or not to engage and be overwhelmed by these feelings. So those are kind of the two sides of emotional detachment. All right, so the first study we're going to look at is about parent-child connectedness and behavioral and emotional health among adolescents. And this is from Ackerd, Newmark, Story, and Cherry. And this is from 2006. So what this study was looking at is they wanted to look at teen perceptions of mother-child and father-child connectedness. And they wanted to focus on the value placed on parental opinions and the perception of parental communication and caring, along with how it's associated with behavioral and emotional health. All right, so as far as who they used, um, all, these, uh, all these people in it were middle and high school students in 31 public schools, and it was a total of almost 5,000 students, and it was very diverse racially and ethnically and socioeconomically, so it's a really good group of people. So in, in 2000, when they did the study, participants completed a project called Project EAT, which is Eating Among Teens, and they gave them a survey in their school classes, and they got their height and weight measured in a private screened area and all that all that good kind of stuff. The sample comprised of about 2,300 girls and about 2,300 boys. Um, and then some some individuals dropped out. So that's why you didn't get all the way up to like kind of the 5,000. Uh, and then they gave them these measure, measures. The Project Eat survey includes 221 self-report questions, which includes demographics, family and personal health attitudes, nutritional and weight-related factors. And they also looked at parent-child connectedness. Uh, how they uh, valued their opinions, and how they communicated their caring. Okay, so in behavioral health, they looked at things like weight control behaviors, substance use, and suicide attempts. And then in emotional health, they looked at body dissatisfaction, self-esteem, and depressive mood. And here's what they found. So the majority of girls and boys reported valuing the parents' opinion when making serious decisions and believing that their parents cared about them. So that's a really good emotional connection. That's really helpful. But one-fourth of the girls and boys felt unable to talk to their mother about problems, and over half of the girls and a third of the boys felt unable to talk to their father. So they know that when things are serious, they need to talk to their parents, but it's still a really difficult thing to do. So 
Those who valued their friends' opinions over their parents' opinions and perceived low parental communication and caring were associated with a lot of bad things, which probably isn't a big surprise. But this includes unhealthy weight control, substance use, suicide attempts, body dissatisfaction, depression, and low self-esteem. So of real concern here, compared to their peers who reported feeling that their mother cared quite a bit or very much, those who reported feelings as though their mother cared very little or not at all about them reported really high prevalence of unhealthy weight control behaviors, like 63% of those girls and 25% of those boys, suicide attempts, uh, more than a third of girls and a little bit less than a quarter of boys, low self-esteem, which is like almost half of girls and almost a quarter of boys, and depression, which was 63% of girls and 33% of boys. So... When you don't talk to your parents about these things, when you don't feel emotionally connected, it's a big problem. And worse, if you feel like that person who's supposed to be connected to you doesn't care about you, then you get these really, really elevated levels of, you know, trouble with weight, low self-esteem, even suicide attempts. So it's a big, big concern. So when you boil this all down, what you have is that adolescents' perception, and again, this is, you have to remember, this is all perception, but that's what's really important because whether or not their parents care or don't, it's about how the child or how the adolescent sees it. So an adolescent's perception of low parental caring, difficulty talking to their parents about problems, and valuing friends' opinions for serious decisions are significantly associated with compromised behavioral and emotional health. So if we do intervent interventions with these kids who are having emotional and behavioral health problems, yes, we need to attack those problems, but we also need to look at the relationship with their parent and how connected they are and how we can kind of get them back on the same page together. Right. So earlier we talked about emotional detachment, how sometimes that can actually be a positive thing. So this article from Sonnentag, Cutler, and Fritz in 2010 was about job stressors, emotional exhaustion, and and the need for recovery, and it's a study on the benefits of psychological detachment. So we talked a lot about how job stress is a big deal and actually costs not only emotional stress on people, but financial stress on institutions because you're not doing the work you should be doing, you're calling in sick more often, all that, all that stuff. So when they talk about psychological detachment, um, they define it as an individual sense of being away from the work situation. Psychological detachment from work refers to a state of mind during non-work time characterized by the absence of job-related activities and thoughts. It implies distancing oneself from the job, not only in a physical, but also in a mental sense. So this is a, the idea of leaving work at work and enjoying your time at home and using that for self-care. But we also find that job stress is a predictor of low psychological detachment. So the more stressed you are at work, the more difficult it is for you to detach and leave work at work. So they had a couple hypotheses about, about these people they're going to look at. One, high workload is negatively related to psychological detachment from work during non-work time. So what we just said, if you, have, if you work a lot more, it's going to be harder for you to shut that down. And the second hypothesis um, to do with job stress is emotional dissonance at work is negatively related to psychological detachment from work during non-work time. So that dissonance is basically a discrepancy between the requirement to express specific emotions at work and what emotions you genuinely feel. They also, they also thought like weak or strong work home boundaries are predictors of this detachment. So that hypothesis states spatial and technological work home boundaries are positively related to psychological detachment from work during non-work time. So the stronger your boundaries are, the more easy it is to detach, which makes a lot of sense. And, last, and the other category they're looking at is the psychological detachment from work and strain symptoms. So uh, their hypotheses there were psychological detachment from work during non-work time is negatively related to emotional exhaustion. So if you are able to detach, you're not going to have as much emotional exhaustion. And their second hypothesis in there, in there is it's also negatively related to the need for recovery. And recovery would be seen as like taking extra time off. And they thought that psychological detachment would be this partial mediator between job stressors, work home boundaries, and strain. So psychological detachment from work during non-work time should partially mediate the relationships between these stressors, the workload and the emotional dissonance, and the strains, the emotional exhaustion, and the need for recovery. So what they did is they recruited study participants uh, from all over these different areas and sent them a survey package, which had a cover letter, a survey to be completed by themselves, a survey to, completed, to be completed by their spouses, and a return envelope. 
So they got 142 self-report surveys and 102 spouse surveys. And when they got this data back, the analysis showed that high workload, emotional dissonance, and low work-home boundaries were related to poor psychological detachment from work during non-work time. So those hypotheses all came true. And poor psychological detachment, in turn, predicted high levels of emotional exhaustion and the need for recovery. Psychological detachment was a partial mediator between job stressors and these strain reactions we talked about. So it's really important that we think of emotional attachment, we think of um, this emotional connection as something that can be really good, especially in our relationships. But if we're not able to ever detach, then we're going to have all these negative things happen because we only we have a finite amount of emotional energy uh, and our bodies and our minds need to recover. So if you're constantly emotionally connected, that can be just as bad as being constantly emotionally disconnected. I think uh, the characters in this movie are definitely more on the side of, of being too disconnected, but there are some connections there. And of course, we'll talk about that when we talk about the movie. So we're going to take a break right now and then bring Becky Belzeal back to talk about A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Watched the movie, check, popped the popcorn, check, sealed off all the doors and windows so that no one knows I'm home, check, and double check. I'm ready to listen to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Oh, hello. I didn't realize you were here. Hey, it's uh, Dwight, your best friend from the Broken Brain Podcast. Uh, what's that you say? What's the Broken Brain Podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Broken Brain is your weekly dose of mental health. It's a podcast hosted by me, a professional therapist, where we talk about the latest and most exciting things that we can find and learn about in the world of mental health treatment. We talk about anxiety, depression, uh, neurological underpinnings of the brain, addiction. We talk a lot about trauma recovery and uh, just all, all kinds of things that you'd expect from a show uh, hosted by and guested on by professional therapists and other medical mental health professionals. You may even be lucky enough to tune in to an episode starring your very own David Hart from this very program. Speaking of which, Dave is about to tell us all about how to feel about this new or possibly old breaking blockbuster classic movie that he's about to say now. Take it away, Dave. All right, so we're back. So we're back to talk about the movie. So as always, we'll kind of talk about our history with this movie. So this is a movie I remember hearing about when it came out, and it was one of those that was probably in theaters for like a week and a half because uh, it's one of those very, very small releases but got a lot of uh, good critical praise. Uh, and then for a while, it was on Netflix. Um, so I just – I remember hearing about it, and then it popped up there, so I – I immediately watched it because it was one of those I meant to go see. And I remember just being like totally enamored with this movie and it feeling so different uh, and like a very different perspective, not only on, as you mentioned, on the kind of vampire genre, but just a, a different perspective uh, behind the camera and a different kind of movie. And I just kind of immediately fell in love with it. So I was really happy to be able to watch it a second time. What about you? Um, I remember seeing it as soon as it came out i think i saw it at a film festival but that year was so full of good horror that it kind mm. of just got shuffled under with the rest of them so this right. was the last time we watched it sorry the last time i watched it, it was brand new and then i watched it last night nice wasn't this the same year as the Baba Duke? didn't they both come out that same year in I, 2014 i think oh it's such a blur yeah but it, that was a really re really good year in general for movies but also for the horror genre. And we've kind of talked about this offline about how, you know, I was, I used to be one of those people that kind of like, you know, looked down my nose at the horror genre, but uh, kind of because of these quote unquote smart, smart persons horror movie, which is probably offensive to people who watched horror uh, before the last couple of years. It's really I'm kind of so mad at you. <laughs> it's really kind of opened my eyes <laughs> to the genre in general. So I've been able to kind of go back and watch older horror movies with kind of with this lack of of pretension hopefully uh so it's been nice to kind of see the genre explode a little bit and and people get to see these movies so we're gonna we're gonna jump into the direction now so uh the director is uh anna lily amrapur um i believe is an iranian director and this was kind of her first i don't know if it was her first feature but definitely the first time she was noticed at all uh kind of by by the masses and now she has a new movie coming out so any thoughts uh, just generally on her direction of A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night? Um, I think this is a movie that looks incredible. I know people say all the time, you know, like, it was such a good movie. Everything looked great. I'd frame every shot. But I really believe that about this movie. Yes. Um, the composition, the framing, everything was just gorgeous about this. 
Yeah, I think that's that's the thing that really sticks with me is that, you know, it's not a long movie. It's an hour and 40 minutes or so. Uh, and there's no for me, there's like no wasted energy here. Like uh, she really she really knew what she was doing and knew what she wanted to get across. And I've heard uh, a lot of complaints about this movie, both from people I know and just people on uh, on social media, that this is style over substance, that there's not much to it, uh, but it's really pretty to look at. And that kind of irks me uh, because I think there's actually a lot going on in this movie. But you're right, like from a visual standpoint, like this does really pop. This does really stand out like from the first frame to the last. Yeah. Another thing I noticed is that, um, you know, there's a lot of themes going on in this movie and, and one of them, and you know, this is, could be a moment where I'm reading too much into this, but there's a lot about, I think, female sexuality in this movie. Uh, and a lot of movies aren't willing to make, to make women the aggressors, uh, when, when it comes to sex or when it comes to any kind of action. And I love that in this movie, it kind of opens up with our main male character being eyed by a female character in this almost predatory way. And I think it's really interesting because it kind of sets up, you know, other characters in the film and, and kind of what, where the film is going. Yeah. I mean, she's watching people as much as we're watching them, which I think is very interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. And it just it struck me as I was watching this because it's it's interesting when you watch things a second time because the first time you're just like so I think you're so in it that it's hard to kind of pick these things uh kind of on the side, but as you rewatch it you and you kind of know the themes going in, there's there's a lot to look at. Um another another thing I like about the direction is there's there's kind of this intimidation sequence in kind of one of the very first scenes with our main character's father and this like local drug dealer, pimp, all around kind of jerk, all around bad guy. And I love how long she decides to hold on this kind of intimidation sequence where we actually watch our main character back down. And it's interesting to me because he's set up in the beginning of the film as this very cool character, like a little bit of a kind of James Dean throwback. And we kind of expect him to stand up to this person. So I love that at, it kind of subverts all these expectations from kind of the, maybe the second or third scene we see him in. Yeah, you, I think it's really interesting with him because you expect that from him. But um, this shows just how long he's been kind of just dealing with it. Do You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And at the beginning, when uh, the pimp takes his car away. I love the scene where it's like overhead looking down and where his car was parked. There's sort of like a pit underneath it. Yeah. And all I could think of was like, he lost the car that cost him whatever, 2000 some days, right. (laughs) You know, to get, and, and everything is gone and he's left like not only with nothing, but like, less than nothing yeah like in a pit yeah absolutely yeah i i also love that that setup uh and i love how quickly that car is stolen like we don't have a lot of time to get to know to the to get to know this character all we know about him is you know is his dad is is addicted to drugs not the best situation he has really put all his heart and soul into working enough to to buy this car so we know that's really important to him and within like 10 minutes that is yanked out from under him through no yeah. fault of his own not because like he screwed up but because he's related to someone that screwed up so it's kind of i was kind of impressed again with the efficiency of this that we care about him so quickly um so so that really worked for me um i also think from a from a standpoint of just uh of filmmaking there there's a scene uh that takes place in a car uh, with our kind of main bad guy and this prostitute who, of course, is ancient at the age of 30. Um, and there's some really creative shots inside the car. One to obviously like not show anything, but just like to kind of look in through the windows. And it makes us feel feel like we're seeing something we're not supposed to. And also gives us this impression as we see, you know, our kind of uh, our, our real main character kind of show up like watching from a distance. And I, and I really like that choice. Mm hmm. And I also I also really liked that in this, you know, we we've talked a lot like when we talked on our monster episode about, you know, the the great things about having a female director. And one of those is kind of avoiding the male gaze. Uh, And I love the fact that the men are the one that are on on display in this movie, Uh, like even our, our main our main villain here. Like there is a scene right before he dies that he's like kind of dancing around his shirt open, like abs showing, like all that. Uh, and the same thing with our with our main our main protagonist, our male protagonist. Like I think he is seen as a sexual object in a lot of ways, whereas our female characters aren't. And for me, it was just such a nice change to see that. 
Sure, but I think Addie, the sex worker, there's a scene where she's dancing kind of sexually and we're looking at her body in that way. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah, I guess maybe it's it's nice that it's a little bit more even, uh, which sure. is something we usually don't get uh, in films like this. Um, an- another choice I like that the director made is there's kind of, you know, we talked about the scene uh, with the prostitute inside the car. Uh, and there's this kind of there's this moment of, you know, kind of creepy submission where he says, you know, kind of, don't you want to get married? Don't you want to do something now that you're quote unquote so old and she and she sucks his finger and it's this moment of submission that turns of course into this purely sexual act and i love that the scene right before he dies a similar thing happens with our vampire uh and she does the same thing but it becomes a moment of power and i like that kind of dichotomy that happens so soon one scene after another I also think like the she does a really good job of playing with tone here there's there's some moments in this movie that are that are almost childlike. They're they're funny. They're enjoyable. And then, of course, there's moments that are really, really dark, which which is really hard to pull off. But I think she does. Yeah, I totally agree. All right. Um. So, uh, kind of moving on from the direction. Um. What did you think about the performances in this movie? Which was there a particular performance that stood out for you? Um, I feel pretty mixed about it. Uh, I think that. Let me just switch my page here. <laughs> My favorite character was Addie. I felt like she was the most interesting, compelling character. I was more interested in how she got to where she was going and where she was going from there than anybody else. Um, I think Sheila Vaughn, she played the main girl. Mm -hmm. And I think she was great in a sort of um, cat-like way. Yes. She seemed like (laughs) someone who wants to like play with her prey before she kills them. Um, She's mysterious, but I don't know if she's as magnetic as she could be. In this role. Interesting. See, I really Mm -hmm. liked her performance a lot. And I think uh, one of the reasons is something you just brought up that she does have that that predatory thing down like she does feel like a a cat playing with a mouse uh, in the corner of the room. Just like I'm not going to kill you yet. I'm going to wait till till I'm ready to do this. And I have all the power Mm -hmm. in this situation. And I I really liked and there is a certain distance to her performance. Um, So maybe that's why uh, she doesn't have that kind of that magnetism you're talking about, but that's something I actually really appreciated. And it felt like, and maybe this is a slight on her, but it felt like that performance was molded by the direction and the way, the way the movie was framed. Uh, it was kind of meant to be this certain way. So I really liked the performance, but it's not as if I saw it and was like, Oh my God, I can't wait to see the next thing she is in because she's going to be amazing. Um, I'm more interested probably in what the director does next, if that makes sense. Oh, that makes total sense. Yeah. 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 And it makes me wonder if this is a role that could have been better with someone else. I have a hard time imagining that because it is so it's such a structured role and there's there's so little dialogue to work with. But maybe. Well, maybe it maybe it doesn't matter who plays her. Maybe that's not the point. I don't know. I'm just thinking about it. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, she's kind of an archetype. Uh, You know, she is playing the like there's some difference to it, but she is playing the stereotypical vampire in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's Mm -hmm. meant to I think it's meant to inspire a certain response from us because of all the history we have with that legend. Mm -hmm. What did you think of of our main male character of of Arash? What what did you and of of course, you could tell this is a independent film because Arash is played by Arash Morandi. And that happens a lot in independent movies. Uh, But what did you think of his performance here? I thought it was pretty great, Um, especially when he goes to the party and does X. And he sort of goes into this kind of weird (laughs) dream state. He pulled that off super well. And honestly, I'll get into this later in my favorite scenes, but I think he's actually quite sexy in this movie yeah i mean there is a shot i mean i totally agree there's a shot early in the movie with him just kind of standing by his car you know hand in his pocket kind of looking off in the distance and i was and that's why i mentioned kind of the james dean thing like he definitely has that that something like i i he's something somebody you want to watch like every time he's on screen Mm -hmm. even even if he's not doing something that that's overly impressive your eye is drawn to him and i also liked you know you talked about the the kind of ecstasy scene but even the scenes where he's kind of recovering and like he you know is like oh i can't walk you know all those scenes with him and him and the girl which is uh what sheila vond is is uh referenced as in the cast list like that stuff is really endearing and that really works too i mean i think it's 
it's impressive enough to have that certain something and be sexy standing off to the side. But when you can play up some of the comedy too, like that, that takes a gift. Yeah, definitely. So I think the the only other kind of major character we have is our you know our original original bad guy uh, Saeed the pimp uh, played <laughs> by Dominique Reigns. Uh, so this is actually okay. So I'm very torn on this because I really enjoy this performance a lot. Like it is it is really engaging, but but it's also like very over the top. Like there's no there's no real character to be derived here. It's just like I'm going to be the worst person possible. Uh, all the time until I die. Like there's no, <laughs> like there's sexual yeah. assault, there's violence, there's taking advantage of elderly and drug addicted people, there's taking advantage of our main character. Like he does nothing good for anyone the whole time he's alive. Yeah, under his name I wrote, can you make him any more unlikable? No. I mean, you, you can't. He has a neck tattoo that just says sex. Sex, yes. <laughs> I was just going to bring that up. I was like, wow, we're just going the direct route with this character. That's... Yeah, and he's got his, like, gross Coke pinky nail. Uh, he's doing drugs. He's lifting weights. He's, like, dancing. Honestly, I'm throwing up looking at it. <laughs> I don't know how she kept a straight face through that scene. Oh, I know. But honestly, yeah. <laughs> it makes his death's so sweet though. oh it's so satisfying like, yeah <laughs> good god like when that finally starts to happen you know she bites off his finger and it goes and go and i was like oh finally like shoves movie- it in his mouth oh, oh it was yeah. amazing yes <laughs> this movie that movie could have ended at that moment and i would have been like five stars <laughs> this is the best thing ever this is so yeah. so like we talked about like satisfying deaths when we were talking about monster uh same thing here like there and it's interesting because i mean we'll get to this in writing uh but there's a lot of uh there's a lot of stuff going on here where in in a lot of ways our vampire is is definitely our good guy like she is fighting on the side of right in most cases she is taking out people who as an audience we feel really deserve it so let's talk about the writing. What did you think? What do you think of the screenplay here? Because I could think I could see that this is where people would have their biggest issues because we talked about that style over substance thing. A lot of people said there wasn't much to this script. So what did you think? Um, I agree. There's not much to the script, but where there is a lot of dialogue, it's strong. It's extremely strong. Mm-hmm. I'll talk. I don't know if it's best to talk about it here or not, but I think the best scene with the best writing is when. Arash asks her to meet him at the power plant and he says to her, I brought you a hamburger. I'm like, this is going to go great. (laughs) (laughs) I just think it's super nice that he brings her a hamburger and their kind of conversation around that is, seems so natural, even though it's strange. Yes. Yeah. Um, And that's, and that's not easy to do in a scene like that. I mean, when you have one character who, you know, all we really know about him is he really likes his car and his dad is in a bad situation. The other one barely speaks. You know, it could be really easy for this to not work. But I feel like because of that scene, we believe their relationship. Oh, absolutely. Um, as for the rest of it, I think the scenes without dialogue still say a lot if you're paying attention. Um, and people, I think a lot of the dancing in this movie is sort of their emotional expression of the characters because mm. there's quite a lot of dancing. Yeah, there is. That's a really good point. That's not something I would have brought up, but I think you're you're very right. I mean, there's, you know, especially uh, I think, you know, you mentioned the kind of ecstasy scene. There's a lot of sadness in that in that dancing. Like there's, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of this kind of like hopes dashed going on. I mean, and- have you been to a club lately? <laughs> I am really old, Becky. It's been a long time. <laughs> but I assume there's still a lot of hopelessness in in clubs, so not yes. surprising. Yes. <laughs> the thing that really stood out to me more than anything when it came to the writing is the title of this movie. I think it's it's a stroke of genius because I think, you know, we talked about subverting expectations, and when you see the title of a movie is A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, you think, okay, this woman is in danger. This is this is a damsel and we need to worry about her. And really, we need to worry about everyone else who happens to be walking home at the same time she does. And I love that subversion uh, to make to make this character easily the most powerful uh, character that's full of agency in this movie. And I like that she really turned that turned that on its head from the very beginning. I completely agree. I also like the fact that 
they chose to have uh to have Arash dressed as Dracula at that party. I think that's a really a really smart decision, not just because it's like this like, oh yeah, it's a vampire movie, but he's not the vampire. But I like the fact that everything he's doing in this sequence is an act. All of this is not him. Like whether you're talking about like being dangerous, like being this uh being this Dracula character, or like just kind of falling into this drug dealing going on. Um I like that, you know, and, and it makes so much sense that None of that works out for him. Like he's kind of he's trying trying to set something up for him and and uh, and Shida, uh, who's mentioned as the princess in the cast list, and you just know that's not going to end up working well for him. But he's trying to put on this face to be someone else in that circumstance. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned that because my first instinct was that it was a little bit on the nose, mm-hmm. and sure. I didn't. I wasn't a big fan of it. Really, I remember thinking when he says to her, "Like I'm Dracula." I was like, I wonder if like all the vampires know about Dracula and if he's like some sort of authority <laughs> figure. <laughs> right. I was like, just thinking like, wouldn't that be weird? Is there a whole culture around this? Like yes. someone comes up to you, they're like, I'm dressed up as God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I also like, you know, the the idea that uh, the, you know, they kind of bring up some of the idea that they do in all of these vampire movies, which is like kind of the curse of immortality and how nothing changes. And of course, I love that the the fact that this is shot in black and white, um, and it gives it a little bit like it makes certain things pop, but it also gives it this air of of kind of slowness and and every and and age and and I think that's you know I don't think it was just a choice because like oh it looks artsy I think that it was a very specific choice by the director to make this in black and white for that reason. Yes, it was. And it also it makes it timeless. It makes it almost otherworldly with all those pump jacks and the oil stuff going on. Mm-hmm. It almost looks like a different planet sometimes. Yeah, and it's crazy that this was I think this was actually shot in California. Uh, they, she wanted it to look like Iran, uh, uh, cause apparently, and apparently according to a lot of things I've read, it looks a lot like the area where she's from, but this is all shot in California because of course there's all these extra rules, uh, about putting out, uh, putting out movies in Iran, uh, that are very limited, especially for a female filmmaker. Um, but I, but I, it does look kind of totally not, not necessarily alien. Like it's not like it look, doesn't look like it's. It's somewhere you could go, but it does – it feels so empty and it feels so so aged and it could be anywhere or it could be nowhere. And and I yeah. really like that about the movie that you just – that there's no like, oh, look, there's the Hollywood sign or there's the, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge or whatever it is. It's just like, no, this is a small town uh, and that's really all you need to know. And I think you get all that very quickly. I think that um... – the timelessness is important because if we are considering the girl vampire, this is just like the smallest sliver of her immortal life. So it doesn't really matter where she is or when it is because she's going to live forever. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And it's something that that, you know, whenever I watch a vampire movie, I always kind of find myself wondering. And I guess this is a mark of any good movie. Like, I wonder what's going to happen to her after and what happened to her before. Like, how long <laughs> has she been around? Has she, It feels like she is new to this town because no one is alarmed that all these people are disappearing yet. Uh, but it just it does make you wonder, like, what has she experienced? And, you know, I think we'll talk about more when we get to the theme, but it, it feels like she hasn't experienced this closeness either ever or in a really, really long time. And I think that is also something that comes through in Sheila Vaughn's performance here is those moments of of connection that she has with Arash are actually really powerful. And it, it starts off like being like mildly entertaining to her, but I think it ends up being really important. All right. So let's talk about the production value. Like we already kind of talked about the, the black and white aspect, which is of course the biggest point. Uh, but one thing that really uh, stuck out to me is th- there's a scene early in the movie uh, after his car gets taken uh where rush punches a brick wall and hurts his hand and the sound whoever was doing the sound on this like i i like bristled from from the sound of kind of the bones hitting hitting the brick wall so i was really i was really impressed with that and i think we needed that that visceral moment because the movie in a lot of ways is really slow and it's it's so we feel characters frustration a lot but we don't get a lot of acting out so i'm glad we had that moment yeah, I agree with the sound and especially the music. I was reading that mm. most of the music was chosen carefully before the movie was made. Um, and so that sort of helped define the narrative and what what was going to happen. 
Um, I love all of the music in this movie. I love how it's used. I love how at the beginning when Arash is walking over the bridge or driving over the bridge and there's just um, a ditch full of bodies, the music kind of distorts and and I just was totally sold on it. From beginning to end, the music is perfect. Yeah, it really is. And it's interesting because I think if you put this like just in a playlist from beginning to end, you would feel like there's no movie that could make this work. Like right. the music is so disparate, so different and so many different genres, different styles from different places. I mean, it it shouldn't work, uh, but it really, really does. Mm-hmm. And I think in a movie where you do have less dialogue – you need scoring and you need music to really make it work. Otherwise, I think as an audience, it, there's a there could be a certain feeling of anxiety when there's that much silence. So the fact that it's kind of underscored by all this music, I think, is a really smart decision. Yeah, and kind of the mix of music matches the mix of genres that the movie is. I mean, mm. the movie is parts of so many different genres that I have like no experience with, like spaghetti westerns, right. and there's some graphic novel stuff and. I don't even know where to begin looking at it. Like, I feel right. like you got to watch this movie a hundred times to get it. Yeah. I mean, it is one of those movies that you could just watch a, any scene in a vacuum and there's something there for you. Like, I think there's something yeah. to, to pick apart from it. Um, and, you know, I definitely, of course, noticed kind of the Western influence, but there's also like a, uh, and I guess this is, could be thrown into the Western too. Not, not necessarily spaghetti Western, but this like person uh who may be evil may be good but is trying to do the right thing even if there's kind of a dark side to it so you have this little bit of a kind of like almost a comic book like vendetta vibe going on uh which is really different for a vampire movie like usually with vampire movies you have like okay the vampire who is the demon like the total evil character or you have the vampire who's so torn by their immortality and it's so sad and i just i just want to eat rats instead of eating people (laughs) like oh god You know, which definitely gets – definitely at this point I think has gotten old, like whether you want to talk about the vampire Lestat or you want to talk about Angel and Buffy. Like it's like, okay, we've done the tortured soul thing. And I like that this kind of sits somewhere in between. Like she at no point does she deny who she is and want to change who she is, but she has kind of figured out a way, I think, to quote unquote do the right thing even in the realm of murdering people. Yeah, I think it's important to point out too that vampires are probably the lowest on my totem pole. I'm not interested in them. I never have been, but I loved this movie and I loved that it's about a vampire. Nice. That's awesome. That's great to hear. Uh, The other thing for production value I noticed and I found really interesting is um, the girl's room. Um, It is very Western. You know, there's a there's a lot of like there's a lot of pop music going on. There's a lot going on that you maybe as a Western audience, we would not assume of someone who is living in Iran, which is our own problem, because there is there's no monolith going on in any country. There are all kinds of people in every country. But I really like because I think this movie actually has a lot to say about freedom and about feminism. And I think that room points to that to her kind of internal freedom and what she's what who she is and who she's trying to be. So I love the way that room was just set up and decorated. I think especially when you compare it to um, the drug dealer's house. So he has like a fireplace and like fur rug. It, obviously yeah. he's doing really well. He's the living douchebag house well. central. Good God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it totally is. But um, you would assume he's richer than her. But if you look at her room, she's rich with like, culture and Mm. and personal interest and freedom there, which I think is really beautiful. I'd much rather live in her room than anywhere else in this movie. Yeah, definitely. I don't want to live in the, you know, the the drug dealer's house. Like it's a nice house and everything, but a little over the top, a little gaudy. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I, and, you know, we kind of talked about like wondering what she had done before and what she does after. And it makes, and again, that scene really made me wonder, okay, how did she get to this point where she's collected all this culture? Like, is it just like, is this an internal thing? Or is this like, because she's gone so many places and she's seen more options, she's seen the world outside. So I like that it kind of, kind of hints at that, that this is, this is a very different thing. And I th- I think it's, it's important in that moment that Arash is, is still recovering uh, because it makes me wonder how he would react to this woman and to this room. Because earlier in the movie, you know, he uses, the kind of the the patriarchal system to his gain and says like you know a man and a woman shouldn't be in this room together and ends up kind of stealing her earrings so it makes me wonder what he would have done in this circumstance if he had all of his faculties right yeah all right so now we move to favorite scenes so what was one of your favorite scenes 
Well, um, I mentioned it before, but I think that the best scene is when they meet at the power plant. Um, I think it's a really beautiful love scene and super understated. Uh, I like that he asks her what the last song she listened to was. Like, mm. that's an extremely charming question. It really is. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then when he shows her those earrings and she doesn't have pierced ears, then she's like, just pierce my ears. Like, can we can we talk about how sexy that, that is? That was pretty fucking hot. Like I was, yeah. I, I when I first watched it, I was like, "Where is this going?" And then that that moment is very. I mean, I would even call it overtly sexual. Uh, when that when that first when that first earring kind of pops through her cartilage, like I was like, "Oh, this is this is almost uncomfortable. This is so sexual and so intimate." <laughs> because it's, I was it's, super into it. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a really great moment, and it's it's really interesting to see uh, a director be able to manufacture this intimacy and this romance and this sexuality without an overtly sexual act. Like piercing your ears is not a sexual act, but in this movie, it definitely is. Yeah, and I think um, their though their relationship is in a movie and very strange, um, it reflects a lot of our relationships because she says to him. I'm bad. You don't know the things I've done. And obviously she's killed people and drank their blood. Is that so so bad? I mean, it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) We we all have that sort of like dark secret fear when we fall in love with someone else. We're like, okay, but also I'm horrible and you shouldn't (laughs) love me. So to see her kind of be that position was, I thought, very beautiful. And I think that scene has the best line in the whole movie. Uh, when she's trying to get away and he says, if there was a storm coming right now, a big storm from behind that mountain, would it matter? Would it change anything? Yeah. I think about that line nonstop from that movie. I think it's so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And I love what you brought up about that kind of that darkness kind of we all have. And I think, you know, some of it's darkness, some of it's, you know, self-esteem going on like we because we know ourselves. We know <laughs> Not only all the good, we tend to negate that, but we also know all the terrible things we've done because we've all we've all done things that we look back and at best are like, oh, that wasn't the greatest. And at worst, they're like, oh, I'm unlovable now because I did this like this is the worst thing ever. So when someone comes into our lives and they see us through these eyes of like everything you do is so great because you're new uh, and I don't you know, and, and you get blinded by that by that lust, by that love. And but still deep inside, you have that moment of like. Oh, this person has no idea. Like yeah. that's really great and everything, but uh <laughs> if you knew half of the things I've done in my life, you might not want to be anywhere near me. And of course, like you mentioned, this is an extreme version of this because I mean, she is a creature of the dark. She is she has killed people recently. Um but I think we I think that that scene is really relatable. Kind of on on mm-hmm. both sides. Like I think it, it and and that's hard to do in a in a vampire romance to make to make a movie relatable. I mean, this is not Twilight, the least relatable vampire romance ever made. Whereas this really, really works in it. And 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 when I look at that scene, I feel like it shouldn't work. Like I feel like because there's a lot of distance in these characters, it should be hard to get close to them. But when you take a look at that scene and then the scene at the very end with them sitting in the car together, like this is a really sweet, wonderful romance that kind of turns on a dime because halfway through this movie, it is not. But then like the last mm-hmm. 45 minutes, all of a sudden, really efficiently, it becomes a really sweet, heartwarming story. And that's my other favorite scene is really the end is when mm-hmm. Arash has to make a decision because he sort of can tell that maybe she killed his father, Yeah, you know? Um, and he has a moment where he's looking at the cat and kind of coming to that realization. And then he looks at her and he sort of absentmindedly follows through with the plan until he has to pull over the car and get out. And I think I'm assuming he's just walking back and forth thinking like, OK, is this am I OK with this? And is this what I'm going to do? Yeah. And you never really see that in movies where someone has to make a decision about staying in love with someone or I guess leaving town with someone yeah but i love that moment of like well what's he gonna do yeah because i think in most movies you're right they would just be like it's it's always an extreme reaction right it's either like this is the end of the world or like i don't care i love you so much let's go bonnie and clyde <laughs> it'll, it'll be great um but this I, I love because that's kind of how life works like when something granted not when your father is killed hopefully but like when there is a <laughs> there is a uh you know there's a fork in the road with your relationship and you have to 
genuinely sit down and think about it and make a decision. Am I going to continue this or not? Like, is this worth it? Will this be worth it? And you have, and only you can make that decision. And we've all been there in relationships. I mean, if we didn't, relationships probably wouldn't end. (laughs) If we didn't like take those moments and go like, okay, is this really worth it for me to stick around? And I, yeah, I like that. And again, it's a, it's a short movie, but it's a movie that takes its time and really will, will dwell on these moments. And, and I think it's, it's, it's to the film's advantage that it does because it, it really ties us to Arash in that moment. Because I think if he just runs off with her, we're like, oh, but that's weird. She killed your dad, dude. Like maybe, maybe don't run off with her at least right away. So I like that mm-hmm. we get that, that moment of just kind of internal struggle. Yeah. All right. So my two favorite scenes, um, are more violent than yours. Um, <laughs> the first one we talked about is the, the first kill. Uh, the kill of Saeed, uh, which is so, I mean, we kind of talked about it. It's so much fun, so enjoyable. Um, it's almost like, you know, you mentioned the kind of finger in the mouth. It is almost like a sexual assault and a murder. Uh, but we feel like, yeah, but he really deserves it <laughs> because he has done these <laughs> terrible things. We're kind of, yeah. not even kind of, I think we're really okay with it. And the moment where she where she kills him, where she bites his neck is so satisfying, not only because of the kind of buildup, but also like we talked about sound earlier, but the sounds in those moments really work too and are really visceral because they're in in the midst of all this silence. So that really worked for me. And then my other favorite scene is the be a good boy scene. I just, I think it's like wonderfully terrifying. Uh, the scene where she's kind of, you know, weirdly stalking uh, this child and steals his skateboard. Um, but it is it's i think it's an important moment because otherwise otherwise it's the first bad thing i think we can look at from her like i think otherwise she's a little too endearing in this character but like when once you start like intimidating children like it's kind of like oh man well maybe you're not not perfect uh but it's also really funny it's also really like kind of darkly humorous in those moments too so that scene i just it's the scene i actually remember probably the most from the scene because it is so in a lot of ways it's funny but it's also really rough to watch yeah i wrote it down and um i thought it was very funny you know to threaten this kid when she says for the rest of your whole life i'll be be a good boy yes yeah he's (laughs) like he's gonna be fucked up forever because of that but i'm wondering because this kid is standing off in the distance, kind of watching everything go on just like we are. And I'm wondering if this is sort of like a misplaced attempt to be like, Hey, don't become like these men. Mm-hmm. I'm watching you. Oh, I think it definitely is. I, I think, I don't even think there's any question. Um, I think, you know, if you look at this town, there's like one good person <laughs> and she comes yeah. across maybe the poor homeless guy who gets killed, which is the other kind of rough moment for her as a character where she's just kind of overcome with this hunger. But like all these other people that she's coming into contact with are either terrible or have had terrible things happen to them. And I think she I mean, sees it's called bad city for a reason. I yeah. Guess. Yeah. I mean, that's not the most subtle of names for sure for the city, <laughs> but I think she sees like this kid in this, in this atmosphere and can easily see him going wrong. And this might not be the best way to accomplish it. I mean, he might be good out of fear from now on, but I think it's it's better than him becoming like someone like Saeed. Yes. All right. So let's talk about the theme. So the theme is emotional connectedness. And when I kind of contacted you about this, I said emotional connectedness or lack thereof uh, in this movie, because I think like honestly, all of these characters, when you start out, they have no emotional connections really to anyone. Like even – even Arash and his father, like there's so much distance now because of, you know, his mother dying and and the drug addiction, like he he can't even be close to him. So I thought it would be an interesting theme uh, to kind of think about. So as you're watching the movie, how did this kind of play out for you? I felt like this theme was really difficult for me to wrap my head around. Okay. Um, and I don't know if that's because I'm personally a very emotional person mm. um, when you said lack thereof the first thing I thought was like, Oh, I wonder what that's like. Mm. Um, so watching it, I'm, I'm trying to understand people. And what I found was that I think I was putting more emotion into relationships than were actually there. So I, at first I'm like, well, there's lots of emotional connection. Uh, somehow the girl knows that Addie is being, um, given heroin against her wishes. Uh, and she's there. I don't know if that's emotional or not, mm. but, I think that all of the emotional connection is extremely understated Mm. because 
we're talking about what happened to the girl before she got to that point. And I think probably, and maybe this is just regular vampire story uh, ideas, but generally vampires have like fallen in love in the past and all their lovers die. So they've got to become hardened sort of gave that narrative to the girl. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's why that's why her emotional connection with Arash to me was so powerful. That scene where they're in her room and there's a moment there where you're not sure what's going to happen. Like she kind of angles his neck upward um, and you think for half a second, like, oh, well, I guess he's not our main character anymore. Uh, what are we going to do now? But I love the fact that they just they just kind of lean into each other in that moment. And there is a, not only an emotional, but a physical connection there. Cause I don't think she's seen anyone in a long time that is kind, um, that, that kind of cares right. about people. And it's not something that's outlandish and he always does the right thing and he's a hero, but he's just like a genuine person. And he, and I think they set that up with him, like being a hard worker and doing these things for his father and, you know, making sure this kid is okay. Like all these things are kind of set up in a non- on the nose way for him to be this character who she can see good in when she can't see good anywhere else. Yes. And I think he's a really complicated character because how good is he really? Well, what do you mean? What, what stands out to you as him being not good? His, uh, his relationship with his father and how strained that is. I mean, there's that there's his, um, lying to the girl to get her out of the room so he can steal. I mean, I yeah. guess just like everybody in this city, he is trying to survive. Right. Um, and I guess there is some goodness in him that maybe she brings out. Yeah. I think also, I think one of the things this, this brings up is you're right. Like they are in bad city. So none of these characters are, you know, is wearing the white hat for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I think, I think in that scene specifically with the the stealing the earrings, I think Arash probably feels like this is as close to a victimless crime as you're going to get. Like this is a very, very rich family. There's there's another set of earrings, I think, right next to the one that he steals. And I think that's purposeful, that there's other valuable things right around it and to the point yeah. that she probably won't even notice. So nobody's really hurt by this and he gains something from it. Um, so he's not perfect, but I think he – I think even when he does bad things, he does them – for reasons we understand instead of, you know, and especially when we have him to compare with Saeed who just does bad things because he's a bad person and he's kind of garbage all around. I think that helps us care about Arash a little bit more. Sure. In comparison for sure. But I think even if nobody's being hurt by a wrong, it's mm-hmm. still a wrong and it still affects you. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think, I don't think uh, it's one of those things where Arash walks walks out of that internally as perfectly fine. Like I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of shame involved uh, right. and then that's going to affect him for sure. Yeah. Right. Um, and I also think, you know, your favorite character, our character of, of Addy, uh, you know, she's in this situation now where really, unless you count her starting of this relationship with the girl, the only like mildly emotional relationship she has is with, uh, is with Arash's father. Um, like you could tell she, it, it almost, it's almost more pity than anything else. Like she can yeah. tell she does feel bad for him and she, she likes his company, but she's also, you know, in her way, she's like running a business. Like she can't just like, oh yeah, I'm just going to hang out with you for free because that is not, that's not our relationship. So she has, you know, whether because of things she's experienced, you know, with, with people like Saeed or for other reasons, she has clearly distanced herself completely and kind of halted her life. Yeah, I also really like that she's the only person who confronts the girl. Yeah. Like she's sort of at this point in her life where she's like, I have zero fucks to give. <laughs> right. I've seen it all. Uh, what are you? What are you doing? You got to get out of here. Right. And I think she's the only person in this movie other than the girl who has any real life experience. Mm-hmm. Um, who can kind of understand what's going on. Like even Saeed, who has all his money and all his things, like he has probably never left Bad City his entire life. Like he's he's just been there. And the same thing with, with Arash and probably Arash's father. Like this family has probably been there for generations. So she's the only one, I think, who conversationally has anything to offer our main character uh, because she's the only one who's seen anything and who has – you know, kind of any amount of insight. Like as much as I like Arash, Arash is is kind of kind of naive. Like he's mm-hmm. very young in a lot of ways. So I actually would have preferred if there was maybe one or two more scenes between these two women. 
I think their interactions were really, really interesting, and I would have wanted more than that. I sort of wish they ran off together instead. <laughs> that would be amazing. I want I want that yeah. director's cut. Yeah, because there is <laughs> there is also like it's not again not overtly sexual, but there is whether it's a actual physical attraction or just like a personal attraction. There's something there between those two characters, and you could tell. I they, think it's just um, like a connectedness between women. Yeah. Yeah, like I, I don't think it was necessarily like a, a lesbian relationship that was just waiting to happen. But I, I like their interaction, and you can, and you know, give me a road movie uh, with the girl and Addie, like that. That'd be fine. I'd, I'd be totally oh, fine yeah. with them running off together. That'd be great. All right, yeah. So this is a movie I, I really, really like, and it's a movie I've seen twice now, and will probably watch again. And it's also a movie like honestly, I could, I could. You know, I could put this movie on mute and just look at it and be so, so happy uh, because I think it is a beautiful piece of filmmaking, especially for a first time director. Like, it's still kind of incredible to me that this is this is kind of how she started. And it's a lot to live up to, like, especially critically wise. I think it had like, you know, a 90 something percent on Rotten Tomatoes and yeah. an average score of 8.8. .8. I mean, this is not just liked, but loved uh, critically. So it's going to be it's going to be some work uh, to improve upon this. So speaking of that, her next movie coming out is The Bad Batch. So are you excited for Anna Lily Amarpour's next film? Oh, absolutely. I cannot wait to see it. I think she's got a really great gift. And also, I'm really interested in her as a person. I think she's great on Twitter. Yeah. And kind of the person she is, is, she's very entertaining and intelligent, and she has an incredible eye. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I saw the trailer, and the thing I found most interesting about this when I watched the trailer is... I don't know if I didn't know going in if I would have picked out that this was her movie based on, you know, a girl walks home at home, walks home alone at night and then watching this trailer because it is so different. It is so yeah. it's so over the top. It pops with color. It's got a like I mean, the first film, I don't know if this is a compliment or an insult, but the first film I thought of when I saw this was Tank Girl uh, because it's like so out there and it's apocalyptic and it, you know, it's, it's so different looking. It's not like your standard dour looking apocalypse, uh, which I really like. Like I love movies like the Mad Max movies, but like I like yes, that there's yes. something different here. Uh, and I also like that, of course, she directed and wrote this movie and that, you know, it's it's got a little definitely a bigger a bigger well-known cast uh, in this movie. So it'll be interesting to see if she kind of gains a foothold after this and, is, and, and gets like kind of more budget and uh, and kind of, you know, gets with a big studio and see what she does with her career. So this movie looks looks amazing to me. Like it's one of those movies I've been looking forward to all year. Yeah, I can't wait. Honestly, I think it'll be really accessible to a wider audience, mm -hmm. and I hope it just propels her to do more. Yeah, I think that's a great point, too, is that, you know, A Girl Walks Home Alone, Alone at Night is wonderful, but it's not a movie that I would recommend to everybody. <laughs> it's not a movie I that's like— I completely agree. Like, here, random person who sees two movies a year, you'll really love this uh, this Iranian film about a Western vampire. It'll be great. Like, no, uh, but there are a certain— you people where i'm like no you are going to love this check this out but this does look like it is geared towards a bigger audience uh and mm -hmm. it's nice to see a director who has only done very very small films kind of branch out and do something like that so mm. that should be that should be exciting and i get to look at jason momoa which is always a good thing uh so i got <laughs> that going for me too all right uh so before we head out uh one more time why don't you tell people uh where they can find your excellent writing uh, you can go to audienceseverywhere.net or follow me on Twitter at BexBZ. But that's at your own. Like, I'm warning you. It's that's your, at there. your peril. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I disagree. <laughs> She's a great follow. I mean, it's a little... It's a little uh, there's a lot of personalities going on uh, going on, on that feed. <laughs> but, but it's a good time. I would highly recommend it. Watching the world so small below. All right, everybody, thank you for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. There's lots of ways you can connect with us and help us out. You can just keep listening and tell your friends about Pop Culture Case Study because we always want more listeners. You can follow me on Twitter at PC Case Study, or you can listen to other great movie podcasts like 
War Machine versus Warhorse and the True Bromance Film Podcast. And you can find both of those and many more at the Following Films Network. That's followingfilms.com. But really, if you really want to help us out and you have a little bit of extra money, we'd really appreciate it. You can go to patreon.com slash study, and there you can actually donate on a per-episode basis. And not only can you help out an independent podcast, not only can you get cool rewards, but if uh, episodes ever get edited early, you get first crack at them. So if I get this done a couple days early, it will be up on Patreon for subscribers only until our regular release time. Uh, next time you hear me, hopefully we'll be doing an episode on The Bad Batch, but uh, new releases are always uh, always kind of a risk, so we may or may not do that. But hopefully we'll still have an episode uh, that will be with Britt and have uh, her fangirl fixation and her film education and all that good stuff. So we'll have, we'll have that at the very least. All right, so until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. Can you just pronounce the director's name for me? Uh, I can attempt to. <laughs> uh, I think it's Anna Lily Amirpour. Okay. I think. That's what I thought. But, you know, I'm just, I, I'll probably, when I first say it, I'll probably apologize before I say it, uh, just in case it's wrong. Uh, but, <laughs> because, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> All right, sounds I have no good. real idea. Like someone comes up to you, they're like, I'm dressed up as God. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>